0: Hello, too often psychology, like all academic disciplines, can seem obtuse and its findings can be overly generalized or even misapplied. Worse, psychologists, due to the vicissitudes of funding and to the current organizational structure of academia, often spend little time addressing the questions that are of most interest to ordinary people about the mind, instead focusing on highly specific, tractable, measurable avenues of research based on work that's gone before, In this series, my co-host psychologist Dr Andrew P. Allen and myself, writer and broadcaster Gareth Stack, take a look at some naive everyday questions about human beings, their brains and minds, and attempt to shed psychologically informed light on them. It's inevitable that we'll confuse as we attempt to simplify, mischaracterize as we try to explain, and skip over vital work as we attempt to synthesise, but nonetheless we'll try to be entertaining, informative, and accessible.
1: Today we address a topic that's long been of interest to psychologists and lay people alike, creativity. We'll discuss just what defines creativity, how it can be measured, whether some people are intrinsically more creative than others, and ask if it's possible to increase one's creativity. When we think of creative people, we frequently imagine highly influential and successful artists and scientists, people whose ideas were not only original, but also had a great impact. And indeed, this view does contain two important elements of creativity. The generation of a novel, effective idea and its elaboration into a new form or solution to a problem. But it also brings up one of the most difficult elements in measuring creativity how can we assess creative thought? Truly original work may be so novel and so sophisticated it can't be appreciated in its creator's own time. Moreover, if we concentrate on studying genius, we leave out both the more mundane creativity involved in everyday life and the more numerous creative acts of creative professionals and talented amateurs in everyday life.
0: Today we'll try to square the circle as we discuss creativity in the first episode of Psychology in Mind. So Andrew, um, after that stuffy introduction... (laughs) Let's let's truly introduce ourselves. So you're you're a psychologist. What do you what's your current area of research? So my current
1: area of research is uh looking at aging and memory. So um what we're doing is we're forming kind of reminiscence groups um in a number of locations around Dublin where um older adults will will have a chance to discuss uh, kind of a mixture of uh, personal autobiography throughout their lifespan as well as their memories of say more historical events, so say things like uh JFK or Pope John Paul II's visit to Ireland. And we're looking at whether kind of this kind of structured reminiscence has a positive impact on autobiographical memory, like on, um, I suppose, both uh, people's kind of semantic memory of, say, uh, um, say kind of facts from from the past, as well as episodic memory. So, and I suppose the extent to which people, um, or the intensity with which they re-experience autobiographical memory uh, over time. So we're currently looking at that in healthy older adults, but we'll also be interested in... Uh, looking at this in a patient group with early dementia as well, and seeing whether this kind of structured reminiscence can, can impact upon memory. But um, I've had yeah I've had quite a, a checker past like of, of from various uh, areas of psychology. So I was quite involved in the uh, gut brain axis uh, research group. Uh, in University College Cork uh, uh, for up to about five years kind of between 2012 and 2017 Uh, so we were doing a a number of studies there looking at things like irritable bowel syndrome um, probiotics and stress uh, and so uh, for for people who
0: might not be aware there's in the last 20 years I suppose there's been quite a bit of research actually on how gut health and the immune system in general um, and primarily um, inflammation impact on on cognition, on your ability to think yeah. and feel. And can you give us a, just a little bit? I know we're kind of stepping away from creativity, but I think that's really interesting just um, for anyone who's not aware of it, you might think of the mind the brain uh, being exclusively in the brain or the, or the central nervous system
1: yeah so i mean i, I suppose this ties in more broadly with the, the whole idea of the embodied mind so psychological stress which which often you know stems from social uh, psychosocial sources can impact upon the uh, the immune system so it can induce heightened kind of inflammatory activity and I mean this this in turn has kind can have an impact on the body so I mean irritable bowel syndrome which is this um which is kind of thought of as this kind of archetypical gut brain access disorder um I mean it is associated with a higher prevalence of kind of childhood trauma or abuse in childhood and um it is um But symptomatically, it's associated with kind of abdominal pain and altered bowel habit as well. So it was was an area like we were quite interested in studying. Um, And uh, Paul Kennedy, who was my colleague for for a number of years there, who did did a very interesting uh, PhD project looking at kind of the the psychology of irritable bowel syndrome. So Has
0: your work also touched on creativity at all?
1: I suppose I've been interested in um, the, I suppose, dual processes of of creative thinking. So this idea that Daniel Kahneman, for example, uh, wrote quite a bit about type 1, thinking and type two thinking so um kind of uh type one being quite fast kind of uh kind of the use of simple heuristics and type two being kind of slower more deliberative and logical thinking just to disentangle that a bit
0: because we're you know getting really heavy into terminology yeah Uh, um if if listeners have heard of behavioral economics which is a trendy new area in economics and looking at how um how people's Cognitive limits, they're they are the things that are intrinsically limited either in them because they're, pers- they're individual skills and, and intelligence and so on, or limits as a human being uh, that we all share, how those impact on our decision making. So instead of being rational actors, mm. we actually have all these kind of problems with, with uh, solving problems which are based in heuristics, so the mm. tools that we use to solve those problems, so rather yeah. than figuring out the answer to something uh, step by step, it's often quicker and sometimes more effective to use uh, a heuristic, a problem-solving approach. But that approach mm. can have its own limitations and can lead to systematic biases. So, mm. like every time you solve a certain kind of problem, you might overestimate or underestimate the answer because you're not you're not actually calculating the problem in your head like a computer would, but you're mm. applying a
1: heuristic, you're applying yeah. a rough problem-solving a mental a mental shortcut, yeah. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, these kind of mental shortcuts are, yeah, contrasted with, um, say, algorithms or like a a logical formula that kind of maps things out step by step. Exactly, yeah. So the way we've decided to deal with the topic today... creativity is to try and come up
0: with spitball a few questions that people in general might have about creativity and then to tackle them um, from a psychological perspective so as we said in the intro often psychology can really get very specific like all areas of science so rather than uh, psychologists doing a, a study on let's say how why are people creative they'll do a study which is based on another study which is based on another study which is studying one very very specific aspect of problem solving and it's not very um objectively interesting and it doesn't really get at the bigger questions so what we'll try and do instead is we'll try and look at a few broad questions um, while applying real psychological research the questions we've come up with are what is creativity is it actually possible to become more creative do people innately differ in creativity are some people more creative than others basically how we measure creativity and why creativity evolved we'll just uh, touch on that very briefly we'll look at the possibility of creativity in other animals and finally uh, we'll look at how creativity helps and assists well-being and uh, how it's good for people over the life course i guess as psychologists like to say um so first of all what is creativity um, we have this quote here from robert sternberg creativity is the ability to produce work that is both novel and appropriate so i think that's one of those quotes where they're trying to really squeeze everything in. But in, <laughs> in psychology, would it be fair to say, Andrew, that broadly speaking, creativity has been looked at uh, as, on one hand, pr- problem solving, mm. um, like a rat figuring out a maze or whatever, mm. uh, and on the other hand, coming up with novel ideas?
1: Yeah, I, d- I don't think it's necessarily either or, but certainly there is kind of a continuum of the methods people use to look at um, creative thinking. So at one end, you might have um, problem solving where the researcher knows what the solution is already and they're trying to see if the person can come up with it so the famous kind of um say nine dots arranged in a square and you have to be able to draw four lines to connect all the dots like but um then you can have kind of problem solving where it's a bit more open-ended where there's numerous potential um solutions where one isn't necessarily more valid than the other it may just be a bit more original and then at the other end you can have quite um very open-ended things like composing a piece of music, say, for example. Um, And you could use a technique, just you might get, say, expert judges to rate how good they think the piece of music is themselves. So I think, yeah, there's a range of... um, uh, There's a range of of the extent to which it's kind of uh, more uh, problem-solving with a key answer that people are looking for versus very open-ended kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and I mean straight away before we even get into any of the research there's already a question there about whether these are the same kinds of things at all um, mm. yeah. you, you know whether solving a problem like the, the one you mentioned where you have to um, connect dots I mm. uh, uh, mean you might perceive that as a very mechanistic task so you mm. come up with an approach to resolve it but that could be entirely based on your past experience with mathematics or spatial reasoning and there might be very little of what we would consider creativity involved in something like that Mm. and at the the other end of the scale uh, composing a piece of music can be very mathematical Mm. or it can be someone sitting down and playing and then melody emerging and in that context it seems like there's very little of the same kind of thing there's very little reasoning involved Mm. it's much more a case of whatever we might term inspiration or association
1: yeah, I suppose with the most open-ended kind of works as well. It it um, just in terms of the the definition of creativity you mentioned, I think probably a majority of psychologists would accept the the definition that that Sternberg has given. In terms of there being two key aspects, being able to produce work that's novel, uh, I suppose deliberately producing novelty, and the second aspect is kind of appropriateness or, or usefulness, if you like. Uh, but um, Robert uh, Weisberg, similar name but different guy, who's done some uh, interesting stuff. He wrote a very interesting book on creativity. Has uh, has made the case that um, we should really only define creativity on the deliberate uh production of a novel outcome and not uh worry about kind of appropriateness or usefulness so i mean he's kind of given various reasons for this but but one thing that's kind of interesting that he says is that if we want to give a psychological account of creativity the actual thought processes that go in i mean if you look historically at uh, a number of creative outputs like um say paintings and so on um if jackson pollack's number five let's just imagine had been done in say a certain point in history, not, people would have just seen it as pure chaos. but um, So it wouldn't have really, I think a lot of people said it wouldn't have passed that criterion of usefulness. Um, but later on, I mean, you know, it would probably have been picked up later on as, as you know, this work of genius uh, in a, further on down the line. So um, I suppose it seems a bit incoherent to kind of talk about, you know, the psychological process becoming creative after the fact, mm-hmm, just because mm-hmm. society catches up with it uh, afterwards. Um, and that's
0: uh, that. Uh, you've written an article about this on your blog. Actually, you want to give your blog a plug?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So on my uh, my blog, Andrew's Psychology Archive, <laughs> um, I uh, I was talking a bit about yeah, um, the the Weisberg article. Yeah, on on this um, this area. Yeah, the Jackson that's...
0: Pollock example is kind of interesting because abstract expressionism, the area in which Pollock was working, um, was promoted heavily by the CIA. Mm, okay. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting argument about to what extent how we view that work as artistically valid or important and I say that as a fan of um, Bollock's work I've really enjoyed it and visits to, to MoMA and, and places like that um, where where you can see it in the flesh where it has a completely different impact to just staring at a series of blotches on a, you know in a documentary or something mm-hmm. um, but there's a, there's a big argument about whether the validity of that kind of work uh, and its importance in the history of art has been influenced heavily by its promotion as a tool because at the time Soviet art was very figurative mm. and you know there was a promotion of art it had a social good and it was considered uh, in the US in the intelligence community that promoting art that was good kind of wholly capitalistic in the sense that it couldn't be said to have a um, there's no there's no um, argument that, that a Pollock painting is making it is completely non-figurative that that kind of work subverted um, communism in a sense mm. uh, and it was kind of an ab- abstruse argument but that was made and millions of dollars were, were put into promoting abstract expressionism mm. um, and the work of, of painters like Pollock so it's, a, it's, an inter- it's an interesting question about would it have been would his work have ever been uh, evaluated in the same way in any other context especially mm. today as the art world has become um, entirely commodified to the point where art is one of the ways that the the quote unquote, the 1% the super rich are um taking their their money there's a problem in the world uh, financial system now where there's too much money which might seem ludicrous but there there's too little too few avenues for investment so art fine art is one of the, the markets that is kind of so managed as to continually increase in value and so that so you have all of this money being invested and the heat or the uh, this is going seems like it's going off topic but the point I'm trying to make is that the assessment of a work of art is at such a remove from any kind of quote unquote objective criterion um, as to as to question the whole idea of how we evaluate creativity creative work and you could say the same thing in music music has become so commodified in the last 40-50 years um, that the popularity of a work uh, and even in some cases, it's a critical assessment. So, um, let's take a Beyonce album, which would be sort of universally uh, popular, relatively speaking, and also critically lauded. You might question to what extent the critical evaluation is objective, or could is could occur in the same way outside of the cultural context.
1: I think it touches on the work of Csikszentmihalyi Mahai, um, who um, talked quite a bit about this um, this model of i suppose you have the creative inter- individual but they have to interact firstly with i suppose the domain say music for example which is in terms of music itself in terms of you know the the notes and the the pitches and so on but then also the field in which they work which is the other people who are involved so the the producers who decide what gets produced or kind of distributed etc so um i mean the creative individual i mean i suppose that there'll always be people who are auteurs who, who may or may not have a, have an audience but most um, I mean, most of the, when if you want to study creativity in terms of looking at these people who have been very highly successful, you're going to be looking at people who are working within a field, within a particular historical context and um, yeah, I mean it's the Jackson Pollock one is particularly interesting yeah, if you if you look at it from that kind of historical kind of political context. Um, I don't think he was in MK Ultra, was he? Or- <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay.
0: MK Ultra, of course, the uh, infamous CIA uh, psychological experiments to to create a, a perfect mind slave manchurian candidate kind of, this sounds like sci-fi stuff but it really happened in the 70s the the um ca actually did try to break people's personalities down to see where their limits were both for uses uh in in making soldiers do things that they didn't want to do namely kill people and and also to, to to see how easily they could uh manipulate large groups of people this has always been a problem in psychology from the very earliest days of treating patients and in institutions with all sorts of barbaric um, things like hot hot baths and electrocution up to today where there's still controversy over the use of uh, psychiatric drugs and uh, ECT and things like that. Okay, so to go back to creativity, um, so we, we started with the definition. So there, there have been various models of creativity over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to get into the psychodynamic model other than to say that it focuses around sublimation of energy so so that, these
1: are these are the kind of freudian or neo-freudian kind of ideas whereby yeah people might have kind of negative or destructive impulses that are turned into something positive right in terms of you know you want to you know you want to kill someone so instead you you make a violent movie or something or yeah
0: or you or you want to have sex and you can't uh so you create a work of art which is on a to take an evolutionary psychodynamic perspective uh your motivation in the moment is because you're full of this energy but your ultimate motivation is actually you're going to create a thing like a bird's nest that another bird will come along and see and go oh i'll hop in your nest you've got a very nice nest um which will accrue status or whatever um and there are you know there there's there's certainly something to those ideas but the the there is a really basic problem with them which is that um creative individuals especially the kind of highly creative individuals that you mentioned earlier which are often studied in studies of creativity tend to actually uh one of the findings about them is that they tend to be more highly sexed so the idea that sublimation uh stands in for sex is you know a pragmatic point of view it's just this was well, not true people who uh, who are highly creative tend to be um, more randy mm.
1: Or perhaps they're, they're they're just so sexualized that they they just can't be. They still it's, have more that they need to supplement. <laughs> more energy, yeah, even more energy that they need to pour into their their artwork. Yet yeah.
0: another uh, un, untestable hypothesis from from uh, from Dr. Freud. Um, so, getting to the more uh, cognitive theories, what, what what have we got uh, in the, in the history of the
1: study of? So I, I suppose touch we could touch a bit on kind of problem space theory. So, I mean, we spoke about music, which is quite a handy, um, even though it's quite open ended, It, it, it uh, I suppose if you think of kind of Western music, it is something that you can kind of uh, map out in a kind of conceptual space. So there's various, I mean, if you think about how music is written, you have various kind of rhythms, uh, you have numbers of beats and you have various kind of pitches, which are mapped out all very clearly. And... Um, I suppose this is something that could be quite handy for, for something like artificial intelligence for example and that it is something you could potentially, it, it's something that's quite tractable for, for a computer program to kind of play around with. Um, now whether it'll actually have the same emotional response to, to um, music that it can produce is obviously another question. <laughs> but um well, it's not really questionable, because <laughs> it won't. <laughs> yes. but we, I mean, emotion I-
0: <laughs> is located in the brain, and we can point to specific uh, areas and specific receptors that are involved. And there's all sorts of questions about how, where is emotion in relation to activity that's going where's the experience of emotion but we can definitely say that if something doesn't have those structures then it, it's mm. not having that experience mm. uh, which is to say that the brain activity in response to emotion is not the same as emotion but without that activity there definitely can't be because it's not happening
1: mm. and again it would be embodied as well so right it, any emotional a strong emotional response will typically affect other factors such as heart rate and um even say it can potentially affect kind of gut activity as well so it's you know it'll be um, yeah again it's it's not even reducible yet to brain activity as right, well right. So and our experience
0: of emotion is somatic so a mm-hmm. lot of what we term feelings are interpretations of bodily uh, experiences so we, we, we think of emotion I think in a very sort of floaty way uh, but but the actual experience of an emotion, when 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 people study um, the specific moment to pho- moment phenomenology of what a person is experiencing, a lot of those feelings are physical feelings, and a lot of how we experience them is about how we interpret the physical feelings. So sometimes uh, you, you might be you might have be familiar with bursting into tears when you're happy or something like that, and oftentimes the experience or the understanding of an emotion is as much about how we understand the physical feelings as the feelings differing.
1: Yeah, I suppose in terms of problem problem space, I mean, uh, Margaret Bowden, for example, has done some, some interesting work in that, suggesting that perhaps you can differentiate between kind of fairly ordinary level of creativity. So writing perhaps... Uh, a novel piece of music that that kind of sticks within a fairly familiar genre, for example. So that's sticking within kind of a particular limited confines within a problem space, or you're using the same kind of rhythms that people have used before. You're using the same kind of notes, but then something that's kind of a bit more original uh, might expand the space in a certain way. So... Say, for example, in um, church music for, for a certain amount of time, um, people might have been using only certain uh, intervals. Like they would tend not to use the, the flattened fifth. So the da, da sound, which because it's unpleasant sounding. Um, and it wouldn't work often in churches because there's so much echo anyway. Um, it wouldn't sound so good. So when pe- if people start using kind of those intervals, so say Debussy, for example, would start using kind of all the semitones. So instead of using the kind of the major, just using say... Uh, a typical do re mi fa soliti do scale he's using all the each individual kind of semitone so it's a much broader palette to to kind of to work with so he's you're expanding the problem space and that uh, allows for for a broader range of creative ideas to to come through
0: which which i think there's an interesting tangential point to that and we were talking earlier about uh or i was talking about um let's say intuitive creativity versus more sort of um intention creativity yeah and in a sense um there you could hypothesize you could guess you could suggest that maybe the things that we think of as intuitive creativity are all influenced by exposure to more intentioned creativity mm. so person sitting with their guitar making up melodies is intuiting but even if they have no musical training their exposure to the work of people who did have that musical training who very intentionally said well if i, if I use this tonal scale if i bring in um this range from, of of sounds from microtonal music say in africa whatever mm. it is um then they intentionally did those things and so so later on people do intuitively uh learning guitar or whatever it is are everything that they've heard before is coming is coming into is coming into that um whether it's intentional or not so maybe there is more of that intentional creativity even if it's just in the exposure to things that have been intentionally developed. Mm. I don't know how well I'm articulating that, but I guess I'm arguing against the intuitive idea that, you know, there's there's stuff that's just made up and then there's stuff that's thought out. Maybe it's, it's not as simple as that.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's quite difficult, yeah, to point to to, to radical creativity and to see how radical, yeah, how novel it is. Um, so I think I mentioned Robert Weisberg, so he's done some interesting case study work, like in kind of, um, in creative... Uh, examples of kind of creative genius so for example he, he would talk about um, Picasso's Guernica which is would be seen as a very, a very highly creative work of art but he, he it's fortunate that Picasso kept an awful lot of kind of notes in terms of uh, putting together his ideas for his works and he had a lot of um, he had a lot of uh, kind of basic constituent ideas that kind of gradually fed fed into uh, Guernica so when you actually look at his kind of thinking process after it there was kind of a lot of step-by-step material that kind of gradually worked up towards uh, Guernica and I suppose broadly in terms of like say that kind of style of work as well I mean it was it was kind of growing out of a lot of work that had gone on before in terms of say uh, Pointillism or um, Cezanne or other people kind of in um, Impressionism that had kind of developed into post-Impressionism or um, and kind of working up towards that kind of abstract uh, work, so it's um... and there but there's a
0: core insight at the heart of, I guess, all of that uh, that area of uh, early early modern art, uh, which is to paint what is seen, uh, and in doing so to examine the visual system on canvas, uh, which is a part of the reason why Picasso has always been so interesting for psychologists because a lot of what he's doing is painting um, m- what an interpretation of earlier stages in the visual pathway mm. than what we imagine we see when we when we think of what we see mm. so rather than painting what is in the world or even painting what is physically seen in the world like Monet did with his water lily paintings where they're blurred because his vision is declining and so on and um, Picasso is literally painting uh, edges and lines and fields which is a part of how our visual system processes information on a very high and abstract level so that can be seen in part not to reduce Picasso's creativity, or the creativity of this 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 kinds of work, uh, like like Piet Mondrian's lines and so on. But part of what they're doing is examining how we see, and so there there, there really was a, a, a at some point someone made the creative leap into a, um, not just non figurative work, but into looking at how we see and portraying that in something that we can look at directly, which mm. is a huge leap. So that leap was made, but perhaps not by Picasso.
1: Mm. Mm. As, actually that's an idea i 'm less familiar with yeah so, that's, so it's it's that's something I came cool,
0: across yeah. so we we studied together many many years ago. I did kind of study psychology, which would be where my tiny um, nugget of understanding comes from and that that was something I kind of came across is when when you look at the neuroscience. Of vision, so there are there are pathways in the brain, physical pathways. So in in terms of uh, the visual system, there's a there's a set of uh, organs in the, the cerebellum called the lateral geniculate striate. Uh, in the I think it's in the uh, temporal lobe, and um, okay. they run from the eyes and back into the uh, the visual cortex, the back of the head, yeah. and uh, this kind of system. Uh, is in, has different levels and at different points yeah. in the physical system different kinds of processing happens and then mm. the the most abstract point because our eyes are actually first of all the point of focus that we can see is tiny we can only really focus on one point so they have saccades so they move across the kind of if you imagine shaking a torch around room so you can get an impression of what the whole room looks like your eye is doing that all the time and even there um you're taking in only a tiny proportion of uh like rich visual information like you might have in a photograph Mm. and the rest is all being reconstructed through your understanding of the scene which is why we fall prey to visual illusions and And it's
1: possible yeah it's possible to test that yourself by kind of focusing on on um focusing on say a particular image and another image kind of close to it and if you kind of move it kind of towards you in a way you'll be surprised at how quickly people are quite surprised at how quickly something falls out of focus when it's not within that very small kind of amount of really focused uh uh, vision within their their visual field
0: right? Yeah. Ex- exactly and, and and so what what they what, what researchers have done uh, in numerous ways from directly stimulating the brain to fmri is to look at the kind of imagery that's produced at, at different stages and they found that there are neurons and uh, cor- uh, cor- cortical columns of neurons which are devoted specifically to say uh, shade shadow lines edges colors motion um, and these kinds of things and and if you look at a Picasso painting from that perspective you can see that one of the things he's doing so when we look at a person and they're moving or we're moving we're reconstructing this is the object this is I'm looking at Andrew this is Andrew I'm not seeing this bit of light this bit of colour but I'm, I'm also doing there, there are lots of different Andrews so the my eyes conveying information as his, as his face is moving, but I'm not seeing a series of photos. I'm not seeing a series of, and in people who have brain damage, so Oliver Sacks wrote wonderfully about this in The Man Who Mistuck His Wife for a Hat, one of his early books, um, different kinds of visual system brain damage that you might get from a stroke or a concussion can break different parts of these systems. So they sometimes they can see just a series of images. What Picasso's doing is he's showing uh, a, a, a person from multiple perspectives. So you're seeing the side and the front and the back oftentimes at the same time and he's he's doing things so he's doing that for an artistic reason to convey you know the unity of a person and blah blah blah. but there's there's a visual thing going on too where this is something this is something akin to how we reconstruct a person from mm. all of these flashes at different levels of detail and at different
1: perspectives um, oh, i wasn't aware yeah i wasn't aware of that that aspect of picasso's work and it. so yeah that's really that's really cool picasso the neuroscientist.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Out now from Picador and all good bookshops.
1: So I suppose one one of the one kind of influential kind of aspect uh, within th- creative uh, theory is kind of stage theory. So um, as we can talk a bit about that. So like um, this kind of goes back to the work of George Wallace. Like so, I mean, the, there's an idea that there's multiple kind of phases of creativity. So initially, you have kind of a preparation phase where you're becoming kind of familiar with kind of the work in in the field, for example. So. Um, you might be looking at people who've done similar stuff uh, within, say, music, for example. And then there's uh, some people describe an incubation period or say where someone comes to an impasse. So they've kind of familiarized themselves enough with, um, with the work and they may kind of hit kind of a roadblock or whatever. Then there's an inspiration phase where you come up with a, a new idea. And then subsequently, there's kind of an, an elaboration phase where you're taking kind of the raw idea and then developing it more. So kind of tweaking certain things and playing around with it. Um, so if you've written, say, a song, for example, or you're kind of recording something, you might uh, try different kind of melodies or you might try and even at a production level, you might try and make sort of the percussion sound different or, or what have you. Um, so those have kind of, I suppose they've been quite influential. So there was the Genoplore model as well was kind of, uh, I think you were you were mentioning that as well, Gareth. But it's... Yeah,
0: I think that that one's interesting. All of the, those models that you mentioned are interesting because they all have this period Um where the problem is not being actively examined. So yes. they all have a role for the unconscious. Mm. And of course, for a very long time, psychology ignored the idea of unconscious or pre-conscious processing. But it's mm. pretty much universally acknowledged now that uh, a lot of thought is outside of conscious reflection. And that includes not just you know where I'm standing, how I'm moving my hand when I'm picking up a cup, but even things like solving a problem. Mm. So um, in the generative uh, explorative model, which was come up with by Fink, Ward and Smith in the early 90s. Um, there's two fa- two distinct phases of creativity. There's the um, the, the, the spawning of the creativity and uh, the, what they called pre-inventive structures. So rough ideas that might not be a specific idea, but there'll be hints of an idea. So for music, it might be a hint of a melody or for painting. It might be some kind of image, but it's not quite resolved. So that's that's built up. And it it comes about through association. Mm. So they're, they're, it's sort of like a duck maybe looks a little bit like a um, a rabbit. So then you've got your hand uh, your hand shadow puppet doing <laughs> a duck rabbit um, to be you know to take a silly example. And after that sort of initial process, there's a an explorative process of um, interpreting those structures, and that can be like uh, as concrete as literally thinking them through. Or it can be a more, you know, drawing lots of different little pictures, which are examinations of the idea. And then there's sort of, uh, as with as with a lot of these models, there's this idea of um, a, a percolation before the final idea is developed.
1: And that kind of touches on the unconscious thing. There has been quite an interesting debate, yeah, within creative thinking and problem solving around the to what extent the unconscious is involved. Um, so there is kind of that, that that idea that the unconscious might be actively kind of working on it. Um, if you come to this impasse, or if you come to kind of a roadblock where you don't have any further ideas, there's, I suppose, there's other accounts as well, and I suppose a number of factors could could feed into it. Like, so for for example, you know, perhaps the person just needs a break. Like, there could be fatigue effects involved. Um, an interesting one, which which may, I suppose, still leave the door open for unconscious processes, is the idea of opportunistic assimilation. So this is quite um, this idea is that say if you're working on a particular problem uh, and you know you've kind of you can't really work out what you want to do next uh you go away and do some other things and while you're while you're doing something else you know you come across an idea say from a related field that gives that sparks that kind of insight to, to kind of take you to the next level with the first problem you're working with um so i suppose then that kind of brings up the question was the unconscious kind of prepared to what extent was it prepared or what to what extent was it kind of looking for um Primed, I guess, is the. Primed, yes, uh, exactly, yeah.
0: But the, I suppose the uh, one, another interesting element of that is the, when we talk about, and we'll talk about it a bit later, what makes some people more creative than others. If you have a really profoundly broad uh, knowledge of a domain, mm. so let's say you know loads of music theory, then you're going to spot um, more similarities more things that you can make analogies from so mm. you'll hear one melody and you'll be like well the structure of that is actually similar to this which is in a different key so perhaps if I transpose these chords or notes or, or even something much more uh, you know much more tangentially linked the color mm. of this painting is similar to the color of this sculpture or this film and yeah. in the sculpture film they use this way of telling a story so if I you know and all that might happen unconsciously yes but it might yeah. partly uh, account for why people who have a lot of experience in area find it easier to make new work in that area yeah
1: so this yeah you've touched on something Mednik, i think in the 60s had this idea of an associative hierarchy and um, so I, the idea behind this is that w- with some people if they're presented with one concept it, it tends to remind them maybe of quite a limited uh, number of things uh, whereas uh with other people for example if they're presented with a concept it might remind them of a much vaster kind of um array of kind of concepts that they feel are related, and and you know uh, in the same sense if you present uh, those two people with with two concepts, one person might say they have nothing to do with each other, and the other person can see a number of relations between them and be able to bring them together in some way, for um, to help you know contribute to their field or to to come up with something kind of original. And and uh, yeah, and you can see that in
0: um, yeah in what we're doing right now. So I'm talking about some things and. They're triggering thing, uh, pieces of knowledge from mm. your research and work, and yeah. you're relating them back. So even in the kind of the discussion about this uh, associative creativity, we're seeing it in, in operation. But mm. just just take a step back, and even doing that as well. That was a second level. Oh, <laughs> this is, this is just Inception in audio form. But just to take a step back a second. We're talking about the unconscious and creativity, and just in my own work as a writer, and um, I, I was I did a, a job interview recently. Um, when the questions they asked me which was really out of the blue was where do you come up with your ideas and i thought about it for a second and i, I realized that every single one uh, of my ideas that has become a concrete project so a play or a radio drama without exception uh, have all come from dreams which, okay which is bizarre really because I, I wouldn't consider myself someone who dreams very often um, yeah. or even particularly vividly but occasionally in my life you know you know 10 20 times i've had a super vivid dream. That has seemed interesting in and of itself, not just
1: "whoa, that was really mad," but like there's something to this, and I've written it down and and developed it. So I mean, like, so you gave me, I I got a shout out from my blog. So I I remember that the play you put on, "Mic Drop," was Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. uh, something I particularly enjoyed. So that was that was essentially this play about this kind of motivational speaker who has a bit of a meltdown essentially but but like what what did you have can you remember a dream that that kind of influenced that uh? that's
0: a good counter example that one that one didn't come from a dream and and the reason why dreams i find are easier to write from is because there's an emotional response attached and oftentimes Mm -hmm. i'll have an idea and it's a really i'm like really interested but there's no emotional valence and i can't really create from that but that particular play came from just my sort of visceral hatred of uh, bullshit
1: okay uh, to use the so, so, okay term. <laughs> well, so 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 we'll leave that one aside okay can, can, can you give can you give like a do you have a, g- a good quick example of, of something yeah. you you did that came from a dream i do
0: uh so there's another drama i did called uh the wall in the mind which is a, a radio drama series and it's a it's it seems like a very sort of thought-out thing about it's about a woman who she's uh, her partner goes missing just as the berlin wall falls and then 25 years later at the anniversary uh she goes to Germany to try and find out where did this teenage boyfriend disappear to, uh, but actually that was almost entirely came in a dream, and I had this sort of um, dream ab- ab- about a woman uh, feeling like profoundly lonely, and it being uh, linked to losing someone in the past, and it was something that I could relate to on an emotional level, and it was sort of linked in with Germany in some deep way in the dream, and I was sort of so inspired that I went to Germany to develop something more from the story and it kind of came together so yeah there's a there's an example so for me it's the emotion linked with an idea like it's something where I wake and I'm like that's a very strange it seems I can relate to it but it's also different to me it's almost like it was it's almost like it was given to me
1: <laughs> now it's something I've kind of been interested always wanted to look into a bit more like the the relationship between between dreams and creativity but it's certainly a, a very interesting example of kind of the a non-waking mind and it's, mm. its role in the creative process.
0: On, on, a, on a more um, sort of uh, completely different uh, very wakeful creative process example I once interviewed the composer Andrew Bird who makes sort of very rich indie music so he, he does uh, violin and singing and it but it's it's very sophisticated even though it's in the pop genre and I called him on the phone and uh, I said oh what, what were you up to and he said I, I was actually I was composing something and I was like really I'm so sorry I've interrupted you're making a new work of art for this worthless interview I'm so sorry and he said no it's fine I hear music all the time sometimes I just write it down <laughs> uh, and then I immediately hated him you know, <laughs> but, uh, he, he trained as a very small child he trained in Suzuki which is where they give you a violin at two or three and you start playing and then you learn music theory and stuff so he had this very profoundly rich deep you know the people talking it, uh, there's this idea of ten thousand hours, which has kind of been debunked. But anyway, uh, but gain oh, yes. a huge amount of expertise. Yeah.
1: Actually, do you want to touch on that? The ten thousand hours. Um. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I suppose that touches on the whole idea of expertise, doesn't it? In terms of, um, I mean, when people make kind of a major contribution into the field, to a field in which they work, typically they have, they have a certain level of expertise. So they've done, you know, this. Let's say ten thousand hours is this this yardstick. So um, I, I think you you've kind of mentioned it as well uh, about how um, once someone is has that level of expertise, like thing forms of thought that might be quite eff- effortful, effortful for for a novice in the field can actually become more heuristic. So the person can uh, engage in kind of more mental shortcuts, and so can I suppose be more productive, perhaps simply in terms of quantity mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to begin with. But uh, again, they, they they would have a broader... I suppose we've touched on this whole idea that they have a kind of a broader associative hierarchy, so they're able to kind of link more concepts in together so they can draw on... Uh, m- they can draw more on their influences or when they're listening to music, new music that's coming out at the moment, yeah.
0: So a really good example of that is chess, which has been very widely studied by cognitive psychologists. So you might imagine that when you see a chess grandmaster playing a match, that what what he's doing is, or she's doing, they're, they're playing a, an opponent and they see the, you know, it, it's visualised like this in movies oftentimes, they see the board and they imagine all the pieces moving very fast and all these different, but actually um, what what they seem to be doing a lot more than that there is some of that they're obviously very good at uh, visual spatial reasoning and that kind of thing and and, and uh, imagining several moves ahead but they've also got these vast bodies of memorized games games they've played and games they've read about mm. in their heads so often what they're doing is they're matching the set of pieces in their heads to one of the many 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 games that they've played or seen or read about because they often they'll read chess books for hours and so on mm. and that it's that that they're that they're That they're using to decrease the space of problem solving so when people started writing chess programs they found that there's what's called a combinatorial explosion which means that um, it's very easy to uh, for a computer to do one step in advance or two steps in advance but it doesn't the problem doesn't increase in complexity in a linear fashion it's it's more than logarithmic so very the more steps that you have in advance that you're trying to figure out it becomes impossible to calculate even for a supercomputer so the way humans were able to reduced down that that problem space of difficulty was to just have this expert knowledge of all the games that had been played. And I may
1: have, I don't know if I dreamt this (laughs) study, but I believe, wasn't there some study where they looked at, um, where they had chess players kind of play kind of games that had been played before? Um, but then they, when they gave them sort of randomly placed uh, chess pieces on a board, they found them very difficult to work with because they hadn't kind of, because the those randomly uh, placed pieces hadn't kind of come from any strategic form of thinking. They didn't look like a chess game that someone anyone would have played before. So
0: they... And it it makes sense like, again to to relate to that from from a point of view of writing. It, there's a sense in which, um, when you read something that's written, let's say you're teaching a class or editing something um you're judging it based on this unconscious criterion of experience so there's a a sense in which you can say that a sentence is beautiful or, or, or a paragraph is beautiful or ugly and it's not you can articulate okay. There, are, there are too many adjectives here, or uh, the scansion, the stress on stress is, is wrong, or something. But outside of that, there's a sense of just recognizing it as cohesive. And when sometimes when you read things that have been written, you know, by computer, uh, you know, these attempts to have a computer write something, a poem or something, you'll 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 see that there's a, a an ugliness to it, which is just because it's not adhering to um, the sort of laid down traditions which might concur with what we have in our brain in part uh, or it might just be cultural of how we structure sentences and so on and it seems like a lot of that is just cultural because when when people try to develop universal models of language like Chomsky has uh, in the 60s the more the more they look into it the more they find that actually there are languages that have exceptions that the structure is so wildly different that it seems like the core even though we have parts of our brain Uh, that are devoted to producing language and understanding language that the, the, the the fundamental structure of language seems to be wildly diverse and it's hard to know what the human universals for language are. Which okay, I guess it brings us to uh, a second topic. Uh, is it possible
1: to become more creative? Is it, Andrew? Is it possible to become a bit more creative? <laughs> I think, well, I, th- I think so, yeah. So I think, well, a lot of it comes down to motivational factors. So I think Teresa Amabile, for example, kind of has written quite a bit. Uh, I mean, this is fairly, it's probably kind of classic work from the 80s and 90s now, looking at kind of intrinsic motivation. So motivation that kind of comes to some extent from yourself versus more extrinsic mo- extrinsic motivation. So motivation, let's say, coming from... Say if you work for for Apple or something and they want you to be innovative, like they might be kind of putting you under kind of pressure to kind of come up with the the uh, ideas. So, um, so let's say you're working for some some unnamed company and uh, <laughs> they're putting you under pressure from from uh, from above from management, to kind of to become more creative. Then let's let's say the the, uh, the uh, Q phone uh, eleven. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I suppose. Um, I suppose motivation is kind of one factor to kind of to to think of uh, and I think Teresa Mabley was trying to build that into her models so she had kind of a stage another kind of stage theory of creativity but she also was kind of building uh, motivation into that. But I suppose if we if we go if we go back to what we were talking back about previously with kind of these kind of associative hierarchies um I think that you know people who, who are, uh, tend to come up with more creative ideas do have this this way of kind of linking more seemingly Uh, disparate concepts into something that can kind of work together and one method that that um a number of people kind of suggest in terms of trying to be more creative is to take kind of the concepts you're working with and try to bring in stuff that doesn't seem to be related Mm, mm. to it and then to try and make yourself kind of work them together in in a in a way of uh creating um uh to try and kind of break yourself out of that impasse, if you like, to try and find, to, to get past uh, this kind of mental um, block.
0: So famously, Brian Eno uh, released a set of cards called Oblique Strategies, which do just mm. that. So uh, yeah. if you run into a creative problem, you take one of the cards and they might say something like, have you tried reversing it or something? Mm. And uh, I've actually never found them helpful at all. <laughs> but <laughs> but many people swear by them um, mm. and he would use them in the studio. So when he they come up with a block and remixing a song, mm. they'd be like, okay, I've no idea what to do. Open a card and take mm-hmm. a random suggestion.
1: Yeah. yeah. I And mean, Brian, Brian Eno has been such a hugely influential musician in terms of working with people from, you know, Roxy Music to, to U2, to, to you know, David his own, Bowie and his own work in ambient kind of music as well. So he's, he's probably a good case study of someone mm-hmm. being kind of, you know, kind of the whole last 50 years in terms of kind of influential kind of music work.
0: Um, you mentioned motivation and the role mm-hmm. of motivation and creativity there. Um, and I th- I think that's interesting because if I recall uh, the research I read on motivation back in the day, um specifically in in terms of learning, um there's there's a negative correlation between um extrinsic motivation, so somebody rewarding you or punishing you, and intrinsic motivation. Is that is that fair to say that so internal na- native uh motivation
1: can decrease actually when rewards and, and punishments are given. Um, I'm not. I'm not too familiar. Yeah, just just those two forms of motivation Mm -hmm. in themselves. I'm not. uh, I'm not too familiar with that that work. Like to be honest now, but it's the the reason I bring it up. I guess is because
0: um, and somebody can correct us. You know, if that's a that's a of the research or it's too reduced or whatever. But um, there there. I did a documentary recently on a on a a, a free school in Dublin. Yes, where they um, it's based on the Sudbury Valley model, which has been running in the United States since the 1960s. And what they do is they don't have any classes or homework and the students basically do whatever they want. And one of the major um, theories underlying it is that part of why children lose their love for learning if they have lost it or and um, children who especially are disruptive in class or who are bored in class, part of the reason behind that is because they're being rewarded and punished and directed and all of those things like on the the QPhone phone uh, 11 project that we mentioned uh, someone being equipped to where's their where's the great idea for the next project can can we've all had the experience of the more you try to come up with an idea for something the more important it is I've been struggling with a play for months and couldn't I couldn't hate it more and it's because I was offered money to write it whereas if it was go ahead and write anything you want it' be much easier um so there's a sense in which that so the idea behind that school is that no rewards or punishment children will develop their own internal motivation towards learning and i wonder if that's apl- that it's applicable to creativity as potentially
1: well. i think it touches on a number of it touches on um the measurement of creativity in terms of you can look at different um aspects of creative output so you can look at um the originality of creative output but you can also look at the the kind of quantity so the number of kind of ideas somebody has so i think you know it's potential you know with with a gun to our head i'm sure we could all come kind of come up with you know a larger number of ideas but um i suppose with that pressure there might be the risk that some of the originality might be lost the person might become more risk averse for example in their thinking so they might if they feel that they're under this. Extrinsic pressure, you know, pressure from somebody else, say from their manager, to come come up with a creative idea. They may be less likely to come up with something that's that's quite radical, but out of fear that it might be kind of rejected out of hand, Uh, so they'll probably try and stick with something that's quite close to what's gone before.
0: So the problem, part of the problem constraints in the problem space are what management will approve, what kinds of things are liked. Yeah. And maybe I mean, we
1: say, we say management, but it could be things like producers, say, mm-hmm. and, or, you know, people who kind of, you know, people who produce plays or films. Or the perceived or,
0: audience, even. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And that's, maybe that's part of the reason that there have been a few articles written recently about how Google can no longer innovate. And you could say, you could suggest that the, the more restrictions that are added on to, uh, the, the problem space of google's creativity so for a corporation of that size a new product it's not enough for it to be successful it has to be incredibly successful uh, same with apple for if they, if they launched um a new device um some new kind of tablet or something and it sold you know 10 million that would be terrible, you know it needs to sell hundreds of millions. It needs to be a massive massive success, so that constrains creativity enormously and it, it gates it I guess in a sense so and that there's a there's a concomitant thing which is that um it might be that for let's say the ipad let's say for sake of argument, the iPad two might sell a billion versions copies of it and the ipad one might only sell a few hundred because it would take until the second version of that for the technology to be usable or interesting or whatever it is uh so that that, but that might never get there because where a small company can take the risk and iterate a bigger company needs an immediate success i mean these are i mean i'm talking in very broad hypothetical terms but i guess these are constraints on the culture of creativity Mm. rather than individuals creativity
1: Mm. i suppose yeah i mean um Breaking out of those constraints is easier to say than to right. <laughs> do as well, but I suppose yeah. Actually, just in the business world as well, I think one thing that's been used quite a bit is uh, Edward de Bono's kind of six thinking hats. Um, and interestingly, I had I did see a study there from from a couple of years back where they did seem to find that the the thinking hats were associated with more kind of original ideas. But the, I suppose it's an interesting case because I suppose the so can you can you
0: outline what the thinking I'll, I'll, thinking hats I'll are.
1: outline what it is yeah. So I suppose what I, we were talking previously from quite an individual perspective, but the six thinking hats is more for kind of small group work work And so the the idea with that is that you have kind of uh, people people within a group, say a group of six, take on different roles. So say one person's wearing uh, the the. the the black hat for example is kind of saying kind of they're they're saying well maybe that won't work because this maybe it won't work because of that whereas the yellow hat is saying oh that will work because of this or this won't work because of that and then maybe the white hat is kind of the adjudicator or kind of trying to maybe moderate it or so on.
0: So it's formalizing the roles in the group in different creative
1: aspects. Exactly yeah so it, it's uh, I suppose it's kind of geared more towards kind of group work so I suppose there are various there are situations where you can do creative work by yourself or some but sometimes you're kind of for various reasons you might want to work in a more group uh group-based uh context but um there's probably a, i'm sure there's a number a number of reasons why it, it might work like but um i mean for for example it might kind of make people um less risk averse if they feel that they've been given a particular role so perhaps it, it has a kind of facilitating effect whereby people feel that you know if they sh- say for example you're wearing the hat where you have to shoot ideas down You might feel that, you know, it's not just being attributed to your personality if you have to work with this group, you know, next week, you know, people aren't saying, you know, oh, well, Gareth is kind of shooting down ideas. They'll say, oh, well, you know, you know, the person has to do that because they're Mm -hmm. wearing this particular hat. So it might help to get around some of the the social baggage that can kind of exist, you know, um, that people might bring to the table when they're trying to do group work in a kind of creative uh, context. Uh, so I suppose
0: uh, just to go on a a slight tangent there's an interesting thing that a lot of artists do um, um, like uh, Stephen Merritt from Magnetic Fields for example where they'll take on a character and write an album or even a series of albums in that character Mm -hmm. and there's a sense in which um, or even like say a drag act um, where the personality is so different on stage and the things that come out of that the kinds of creativity right. that are, are radically different so it's Stephen Merity has this uh, uh, outfit called the Gothic Archies that put uh, Melanie Snicket's the series of unfortunate events to music okay. and but musically very different and I think there's something about adopting an I- an identity which mm. gives you permission to have the kinds of ideas
1: I think the domain where that seems seems to be most pervasive is probably stand-up comedy where mm a yeah, lot of stand-up comics seem to have like a particular kind of character that maybe allows them to kind of say stuff that they probably wouldn't uh say mm, in mm-hmm. in real life right even, and even an, though they may be thinking it and <laughs> an element of the
0: personality comes out that might not be it's not even just that it wouldn't be appropriate it's not like they're having the same idea and just not saying it it's like mm. being that person yeah. encourages a free flow of specific creativity in mm. that character
1: yeah. And even though, yeah, I suppose stand up is quite, although it's usually done, it's usually an individual, an individual doing it, the, the audience is very salient there mm. because, you know, you're getting live uh, feedback. So I mean, you have done stand up comedy, for, for for example. Unfortunately, I haven't.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. And it's it's true, stand up is the only art form that, uh, that can't be practiced alone. You know, it's the famous famous saying, you know, you can you can pluck your guitar at home, but if you do your routine in front of a mirror, There's no response, you know, uh, (laughs) unless you're perhaps one of the the few advantages of having dissociative identity disorder, be your own your own best audience. But um, Uh, you can
1: fall over giggling like (laughs) at your own jokes. Of course
0: you can. But it's it's both a huge advantage in that the performative side of it has this immediate response. So you can tell how something works. And a huge disadvantage in the sense that um, you can think something is the funniest thing in the world, but until you do it on stage, when, which is why a lot of comedians, Mark Maron for example, um, write only writes on stage. And what does it mean to write on stage? It means that he has an existing routine that he does, but then he will uh, continue on a, a train of thought just in the moment, which is tremendously difficult and you know, heart wrackingly <laughs> difficult. But I, I do remember from doing stand-up, um, a lot of the time the material that I did um, even at the time I wouldn't have been super happy with it but it was those moments where I did um, so I, I used to do kind of a variety show and I would after someone had did their performance I would bring them back up on stage and talk to them and we would just have like a in the moment back and forth and that was always the funniest and most creative moment um, but yeah it's a it's a heart-wrecking uh, pursuit uh, so I guess uh, any tips before we move on to the next topic on specific things is there anything that you've come across and what you've read about um if a person wants to increase their creativity whatever that means that they can
1: yeah so I suppose just w- with what we were saying perhaps like just trying to juxtapose different ideas um perhaps to bring about what I said earlier about opportunistic assimilation like if you are experiencing like kind of a, a mental block if you can kind of just find ideas that you can try and bring in and try and see if you can uh, somehow almost kind of push them into your idea and then see if that kind of changes it in some way or your understanding of it. um, And then within perhaps a, a group context to try and to see if you can kind of take on different roles or perhaps have some sense where you can... um perhaps where you can become less risk averse by kind of taking on playing a role if you like can can uh, that kind of work can be quite helpful I think
0: yeah and I think there there can be a lot of creative especially when it comes to elaborating an idea uh, having a game or applying rules mm-hmm. um say just listing your listing the assumptions in something or listing versions of the thing that wouldn't work mm-hmm. these kind of things can can provoke um uh, uh creativity i I guess i would I would feel that when it comes to the original idea um there has to be, and it's something that we don't really talk about here because it wasn't in any of the research I came across, but there has to be an emotional connection to the idea for it to be something that you will carry forward and pursue. And personally, I don't understand how you can impose that if it doesn't come naturally. Um, so if I was trying to you know, make the new Q Phone 11, uh, to do that creatively is very difficult because it's very hard to have an emotional response to a new feature <laughs> in a phone or something. Um I don't know, yet. Yeah, so, so what I'm trying to say is I guess I still feel that there's something, if not magical, then at least very difficult to operationalize, very difficult to make systematic in the initial production of an idea. But techniques can really help with elaborating on an idea. And, you know, if you don't ever elaborate, then all you have is ideas and ideas are of no value on their own. There's an unlimited amount of them. Um, they need to be made into a thing and, uh, to, to be of, of use. So we, we, the, the next question is, do people innately differ in creativity? so are are some people more creative than others naturally and obviously on a practical sense they do we know that there are mozarts and there's myself who can't you know play uh twinkle twinkle on a piano um so there are, there are intrinsic differences, but why do people differ? How do they differ? Is it just because they believe themselves to be different? Is it neurological? Is it biological? What what do we know about how people differ in creativity?
1: So I suppose we're, we probably could touch on a few things we've mentioned uh, already here in terms of things like associative uh, people who are more creative are likely to be able to kind of draw on a kind of a wider range of concepts when they're presented with a particular idea. It'll spark uh, more ideas um i mean there is i I suppose you might touch on this in kind of measurement but like if you look at things like creative achievement questionnaires which kind of probe people on um their levels of achievement in various kind of creative areas uh you do see that it tends to be kind of skewed towards a bit towards lower scores so a lot of people will have, have maybe had a few kind of creative ideas here and there here and there and then a small number of people will have you know a lot of creative output in one domain or um or in multiple uh, domains. But I suppose the the whole genius area kind of taps back into this kind of expertise idea we were talking about where a person has kind of immersed themselves, um, has immersed themselves in this area for, for a very long time. And it is a bit, I suppose it is, it is a difficult question because it's a bit chicken and eggy in that, you know, the person, a person might have to immerse themselves in an area for a very long time, but then a lot of people do that, but then it would seem that then perhaps there's some innate kind of, um, Uh, propensity to kind of go that step further Mm. and of um, course the
0: the counter example is that most um, most physicists most mathematicians have their key insights and ideas early in their career rather than late in their career Mm. so there's something about the flexibility of the brain early in life Mm. uh, as well as exposure so so, uh, it's a combination of they've done some work enough Mm. to have an idea of the field but but also there's something happening there which isn't happening maybe later in life Mm. Uh, and But but there I suppose there's another counterexample example to that, which is that um, if you think of the example, the idea of a paradigm shift, Thomas Kuhn's idea of how ideas and science change, mm. maybe the reason that they're able to have those new ideas early is actually because th- what they have learned, what they don't know is as important as what they do know. So mm. there's all sorts of assumptions that they're not making because mm. they don't know too much.
1: I suppose if if you, yeah, if, if you mentioned about kind of younger research or thinkers as well, they may be less invested in existing paradigms within a field. So Or even aware of be, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose, you know, you might, I suppose there's an implication of a, a limitation kind of an, in kind of older, mm-hmm. more established kind of people within a field. So perhaps maybe it could be the case that they're having some of these ideas, but they don't realize them because they're too invested in a particular
0: that's another uh, issue too yeah. Right, if you've built your career on a certain set of ideas you're going to be heavily motivated to ignore a uh, theory even if it's your own theory that contradicts or falsifies your earlier theory or makes it um, which which would accrue with the idea that uh, I, I know I, I don't have a reference for this but I do know that in studies of creativity uh, the arts differ so uh, writers can often make their, their biggest impact later in life and their most more important novels and say the same with painters and I suppose in those domains unlike in say science you're not making your old work worse with your new work it's yeah. not like your, your your new novel makes your old novel rubbish it <laughs> yeah. falsifies everything that was in that novel so there's yeah. no conflict there there's no mm. um
1: yeah, that's an that's an interesting point yeah i hadn't yeah I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really yeah i hadn't thought of, thought of
0: it that way so we uh, uh we had, we came across this this study on um uh the kinds of brain networks involved in uh in creativity mm. uh big c versus little c creativity i love that distinction big c like i'm sorry i've really come up with a really important idea your idea is only a little
1: a little c it shall be spelt in lowercase letters and uh, do you want to go go into
0: the study a little bit well
1: yeah i'm not well i'm not sure to what extent the the, the study kind of divided up that much i mean big c i mean in people who take historical approaches to studying creativity who study people like mozart and so forth big c refers to kind of big paradigm shift kind of creativity like you were saying whereas little c is kind of everyday stuff like say you come up with a new recipe that has that you didn't see in a cookbook or whatever um i mean unless it becomes like this massively successful re- like it becomes curry or something. <laughs> what, what, <like laughs> but that gives us
0: that goes back to the how do you assess success you know and yeah. there are obviously objectively you mentioned uh, debussy and debussy yeah. did um new things in music that have influenced everything since let's say uh, all of modern electronic music and famously the 1980s uh, band Art of Noise made a made a, an album um uh, about uh Debussy's influence on, on electronic music um but uh a lot of the time it's very difficult to recognize what were the big we were talking about it earlier with um you know Picasso and non-representational art when was the big moment made and what is the iteration maybe Picasso's just brilliant at iterating on other people's ideas and he seems incredibly creative because look there's so much work and it's also different but maybe it's all you know the, we can certainly recognize that in music that there that david bowie is a brilliant example no one could say he's uncreative but every single thing he did whether it be costume or genre someone else had made the major leap to create the basic idea of let's say glam rock or or uh, his costumes were highly influenced by klaus nomi and he is iterating in a way that maybe produces a final work that is better mm. um but i guess what i'm trying to say is that there's a continuum between the small idea and the big idea yes you know and, yes. and oftentimes the execution of the idea is as important not just in the success of how people like it not just because david bowie is popular but his his um his glam rock is objectively better than T-Rex, you know, <laughs> toss that out. Um, even though perhaps in some ways they might've been more innovative. I don't know if they were, but I'm just you know, straw man right there. But <laughs> the, my, I guess the point being that it's the, the, the example, the specific creative work uh, can be as much of, um can be as as, as important in its execution and its delivery than this, the idea that, oh, maybe we can include this kind of new instrument.
1: Which, yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the kind of constituent, ideas someone might take them and run with them kind of to to a greater extent and end up with a greater output even if they didn't have the the um they didn't come up with the framework yeah in the first place
0: like with uh stuart lee and richard herring's comedy partnership where famously richard herring would come up with an idea but stuart lee was so much funnier that he would elaborate elaborated <laughs> make a much better routine <laughs> richard herring is still bitter stand-up comedy was my yeah. idea you might say
1: yeah and so i suppose yeah in terms of kind of looking into the the brain you you kind of highlighted this this quite interesting study so it was using fmri this kind of bra- imaging of different kind of brain networks which was quite which is quite cool because um i suppose creativity draws on so many different kind of processes within the brain that you would you would only expect that it would involve a number of different networks as opposed to a particular region like the hippocampus or a particular part of the prefrontal cortex so it's quite neat that they were looking at various kind of networks so Um, which have been implicated in other forms of of cognition like you so you've got yes i mean this particular study was looking at for example the the default network which has been implicated in things like spontaneous kind of thinking or it sometimes seems to be activated when people are um kind of daydreaming for example which obviously kind of comes back to to um, getting the raw ingredients of creativity. So like. when, we, when
0: we talk about a network in the brain, what, yeah. what are we talking about?
1: So, I mean, we're talking about multiple regions of the brain that are kind of um, that are kind of working uh, at the same time, that are activating at the same time. So is it a,
0: a pattern of activation in the brain or is it just a simultaneous activation of different regions?
1: It should, I suppose, ideally, it should be kind of a pattern of activation, I, I would say, because typically when you're, Um, I suppose the the extent with with fMRI, because it's based on uh, blood flow, I mean, the extent to which you can um, look at kind of the temporal specificity specificity might be somewhat limited. um, So just to to translate that to English, English. fMRI (laughs) is
0: functional magnetic resonance imaging and what it measures is uh, iron oxide in blood flow in the brain. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: yeah, so it's looking at blood oxygenation, blood flow, yeah, within so the brain. It doesn't so doesn't
0: directly. Me- so when you see those pictures of people's brains glowing and this region, they're not directly measuring what's happening. You're measuring where the blood is going, and there are all sorts of issues with when that's happening. And and you say uh, temporal specificity. So what we mean by that is at the same time or when they occur in time. Mm, and it's very yeah. difficult to measure if, let's say, the, the uh, your visual cortex is is lighting up, as they say, that the moment where the blood flows into it can be a very different to the activity and they're at different scales entirely the the uh the the triggering of a synapse is very very quick and the flow of blood is relatively slow and there are real issues with with that in terms of interpreting the results of fmris mm. and, and there are lots of other issues with fmris too. yeah
1: but, but nonetheless i think it's interesting that that the, this paper kind of that kind of implicated a number of different kind of networks within the brain or a number of kind of um uh, a number of uh, regions that have, you know have been found to kind of work, work together. So I mean, besides the default network, you have the executive control network. So I mean, this—I mean, executive control is kind of an umbrella term that describes a number of different aspects of cognition, but it typically uh, is used to, descri- to describe cognitive control. So being able to actually carry out kind of planned behavior. So, and then it, you also had the salience network as well, which is allows for the switching between the default network and executive control. So it does. um Suggest that that this kind of interplay between, uh, say, daydreaming, for example, or, or taking uh, these kind of raw ideas, and then kind of actually using cognitive control to select which you like, that there is this um, this process is kind of instantiated within within uh, the brain as well, which is quite uh, interesting. I, I think um, one of
0: the findings um, of that study. Was that in quote unquote you know creative people people who scored highly in tests of divergent thinking, where yeah. come up like come up with lots of different uses for a hat or something, yeah, and um, that those people seemed to have more simultaneous activation between um, the default network and the uh, the executive control network, is that right, so that they were they sort of seemed to be able to daydream in a structured way, is' mm. to put it in naive language and mm. um, that they were being thinking in a free form way. But to a purpose, more effectively.
1: Mm. And I suppose, yeah. So that tie- that neatly ties it kind of into the whole idea idea of why some people are kind of might be more creative than others. But I suppose, yeah. As well as that, you shouldn't think of it as a, a deterministic account, or that it mm. means those that those people are just more creative. Yeah. So if you if you were able to kind of um, draw more on, perhaps if you were able to kind of look more at kind of thought, different associations. I, you can, I thought yeah. you said if you were able to draw more on. <laughs>
0: If you were able to
1: draw Carl Pilkington, <laughs> he has no executive network. Just a thought. So if you had, perhaps if you had more, um, if you had more uh, practice, for example, in, in having this kind of daydreaming or trying to draw different kind of disparate concepts together and then select different ideas from them, that you would um, be able to essentially show the same mm-hmm. activation over time. Although that's, I suppose that that's something else that that probably would need to be investigated further, I think. But, um so is- so moving
0: on, um, there's also this idea of uh, this is a, sort of a little bit less scientific, but um, there was a book written in 1996 called The Work and Lives of 91 Eminent People, which, which is a very, it's a very kind of old fashioned idea, the, the eminent person, um, where this guy, uh, Mahaley. C- Csikszentmihalyi Mahai. so Csikszentmihalyi brilliant yeah, Csaint- so Csaint- really pronunciation I was, I was struggling
1: but uh, yeah w- uh was also I think we mentioned him earlier as being responsible for this idea of the creative individual has to work within a particular domain and then also deal with the field so the you know say the movie producers the you know with, with film is a very collaborative example so they have to work with say film editors as well as if you're a director and then with you know screenwriters and actors and so forth so um so it's quite interesting that he, yeah, so, but he, he did, it was interesting that he then focused in on the creative individual as well, after having put them in that bigger context. But uh, this and is the creative personality. The
0: creative personality. And, and I think, you know, we're quick to rubbish maybe the, the idea of, certainly when I was studying uh, psychology, I, I remember there's quite a, quite a lot in in textbooks about, um, trying to erase the line between highly creative individuals and everyday creativity and saying that actually everyone's creative and the processes are the same and they do seem to be the same however i think we've all anyone who's operated in any kind of artistic context we've all had the experience of meeting somebody who is just much more creative um so for example um when you looked in the mirror <laughs> <laughs> well i didn't you know I, I i like to keep a modest uh <laughs> no I, I absolutely wouldn't include myself i do find creativity often very difficult and i have bursts of creativity but i have i've met people in my life um uh, and the example i was going to give was um i think john uh John, John Waters meets Little Richard in his book Role Models and he's not being creative at the time but Little Richard is famously you know brilliantly creative all of the time and we've, okay. all, we've all met these people in artistic contexts who can say sit at a piano and, uh, Paul McCartney is another good example whether you like him or not he has this ability I've seen him do it in documentaries where he's talking about something and he sits down and he's like oh this is how you write a song and he just you know he starts playing an E chord or something and then he's oh just do this with the other and he has a beautiful uh, and very affecting melody immediately you know, and, and that there's something different at work. So that's what he was, uh, can mm-hmm. you say his name again? Csikszentmihalyi. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> was was looking at, and he was looking at these individuals and he found some commonalities between them. Um, so how do we measure creativity this is I'm going to completely defer to you in this one Andrew what what tools and techniques are used to study creativity
1: yeah I suppose I could touch on on a few of them so I think well actually previously we mentioned the uh, the creative achievement questionnaire so you can have kind of self-report forms so just that's that's the the questionnaire I'm most familiar with so it would involve a number of different domains so say uh film, music, science, uh cookery for, and it has various kind of each within each um domain it asks, you know, whether you would say you have no particular talent in that area, whether you say it might start off, you know, your friends have sometimes said you have a good sense of humor and it works up to, you know, you've written kind of major humorous works or you've put on like a stand up comedy show and just works through it in various domains. And so it's kind of as a self report form I, I kind of I, I do kind of like it because I suppose a lot of self report forms are based on quite difficult to quantify things like emotion and so on whereas this is a self-report form about a lot of it is is fairly kind of objective behavior stuff like you know asking you know whether you've published a scientific article for example or whether you've written a piece of music most people know whether they've done that or not which is which is quite handy and it does have like um something at the end to kind of uh, where you can just fill in any other domain that hasn't been mentioned uh, within the kind of standardized format like
0: parahawking or uh, par- uh is where you powered line with a hawk
1: Ah, very, presumably very could be good. for creative or, or weightlifting or, or chess <laughs> boxing chess boxing absolutely uh so 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 yeah so i mean that's kind of one me- so i mean it's kind of um it's kind of useful for for kind of measuring kind of the what you might call little c creativity in the within the general population so it's kind of it's nuanced in that it can look at kind of uh Say kind of small everyday acts of creativity as well as kind of big, kind of major, kind of long-term creative output. So I mean, it still has you know some of the general problems of self-report that people might try to present themselves in a certain way or they might kind of exaggerate uh, things, which is which is always a problem. But as I say, you know, it's kind of so.
0: For example, if you were given, you'd write. I've written hundreds of scientific papers and won multiple Nobel prizes.
1: Yeah, well, uh, well, if we go, if we were going with my CV, I suppose. <laughs> I'm kidding, but uh, if. But as I say, it's because it kind of taps into fairly uh, objective outcomes, it's, it's kind of neat like that. Um, but then there's more kind of cognitive uh, tests, that I suppose, that kind of uh, put a question to people and see how, how or put, say, perhaps a relatively open-ended uh, problem to people and see kind of what they can come up with. So you might have, say, tests of divergent thinking. So you mentioned previously, like, alternate uses. So you give, say, people something like... Show them a hat, and they have to say, "Well, think of as many different uses for hat as you can come up with." Mm -hmm. And then they have, say, ten minutes to come up with as many uh, ideas as they can. And the Torrance test is probably the most kind of widely used kind of version of this, where you have um, uh, essentially the person has to do to perform uh, creative cognition on the spot. So it's quite handy for things like experimental research. So say if you want to do a baseline and then see if a person thinks has more divergent thinking. Uh, after say an intervention where say if you had some intervention where you were getting people to try and give them broader kind of associative uh, hierarchies or whatever so they're able to kind of draw on a wider range of ideas in their own thinking uh, if you're doing an experiment or an intervention like that you know it's it's handy to have something like that for a pre-post assessment but I suppose it's quite time. it's generally going to be quite time limited like it's just putting up the person on the spot for half an hour and I can, I can so see it just as
0: a kind of non-psychologist I can see a real limitation to that as well which is that you're You're assuming, or at least you're limiting yourself to measuring this kind of, uh, one specific kind of, uh, not only is it pen and paper measured, but it's generate a new semantic idea, creativity. You can imagine, let's say, a dancer who's an incredibly uh, creative dancer, or a painter who's incredibly visually creative, or a musician who can make a melody all of whom might or might not have any improved performance on this test. So this kind of, this one specific way of measuring, it's its kind of an issue in psychology in general. Like how do you lab measure things like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know? So divergent thinking, yeah. I mean, there's a visual, there's a visual aspect to it as well. But like, as you say, say a dancer, for example, yeah, so that kind of, that. F- form of creativity they might kind of get quite stuck on a test like that Mm -hmm. even though they might be radically creative within within their field so um it is tapping into an aspect of of creativity so divergent thinking but i suppose and within the time limited frame if you go back to stage theories of creativity usually the people won't have enough time to kind of um or they have very limited time to kind of elaborate Mm -hmm. on on the the ideas that they have the limited number of ideas they have within that framework Having said that, it does, in terms of how they're marked, it does kind of tap into a number of different aspects of uh, creative output for for appraising them. So it looks at the number of ideas generated, but also how original Mm. they are. Again, it's done in a kind of a, formalized way. So they have a list of kind of say they've done they've already done this test with a few thousand people and they've made they've listed the thirty most obvious answers to these questions, like what what would you use a sock for? And so if someone says anything that that isn't within those thirty most obvious answers, they get a mark for originality. Mm-hmm. and there's a mark for elaboration as well. So within the visual ones when people are drawing, the number of kind of the amount of detail they put into the drawing, Within that limited time frame, gets kind of marks as well. So it does. It does. It's neat in that it taps into a number of different aspects of divergent thinking, or how you can appraise um, the outputs of divergent thinking. But it is. It does come with those kind of limitations. If we think of then, I suppose the um, the big C creativity in terms of kind of radical creativity. Mm. There are thinkers within this, the, in, within this area who feel. I mean, you were saying before that you know a lot of people would say that um you know any great uh creative achievement is kind of just building on the same kind of thought processes that we, we all possess mm. but there are some thinkers who argue that um you know you know major radical paradigm shift creativity is different at some fundamental level um, and they would be particularly drawn to kind of case report kind of um case report uh versions of uh or excuse me methods of studying creativity um now i suppose you don't have to be within you don't have to be within that kind of frame of thought to use uh, case reports either but it is um it is quite a distinct form of uh, studying creativity so you're essentially taking um someone who's been you know radically creative in within their field like picasso for example and uh, trying to show how their ideas were how they came up with their ideas and so on but just to say uh weisberg for example i mentioned earlier he he would he would be someone who argues that um radically creative ideas actually do draw on the kind of the same processes we all have so when he took he used case reports like picasso's guernica or uh, watson and crick within science when they came up kind of the structure of dna so he was um uh he was you know uh, using those case reports to demonstrate how it is possible for people to have you know major uh, contributions to their to their field that influenced you know people around them but to to come up with those ideas using kind of quite step-by-step kind of uh, cognition uh, using those kind of cognitive processes that we all have albeit perhaps not with as much kind of with the same motivation or perhaps not quite as much knowledge of, of a particular field um, but nonetheless using the same thought process processes essentially
0: so, so there's a there's a real core disagreement there about whether um there is a qualitative difference uh, or quantitative difference between um you know genius or even just regular creativity. And everyday creativity, both the problem-solving so, yeah. kind and the minor, mm. you know, sit down at the piano and, as a non-pianist and go do 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 is <laughs> yeah. the same process going on at work as when Mozart composes something or even when yeah. um, Andrew Bird composes something, you know.
1: Exactly, yeah. But I suppose case reports, as a method, I suppose they come with their own kind of advantages and disadvantages. So if you want to do an intervention, you know, where you are you have some program where you, where you say it's like the six thinking hats, you want to see if that makes people more creative, it's very difficult to... You know, if case reports, you know, in the sort of, you know, um, what would you call case reports that are um, based on elite creativity, let's say, it would be very difficult to do an intervention with elite creative people because they, you know, you would have to kind of try and find them and recruit them. And then you it would be very hard to get enough people to do a quantitative study where you're trying to quantify to what extent it, it, uh, it works. So I suppose each kind of, each method has its own kind of pros and cons. So, but, uh, and they, I suppose, but I suppose they're kind of geared towards doing different things, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, so I
0: suppose yeah c- case studies and o- other qualitative research can be very good at coming up with a hypothesis uh, which is then maybe t- tested later uh, by more quantitative research ideally
1: ideally yeah
0: although in practice it probably rarely works like that <laughs> I'm, I mean I'm just do, just yeah. to, from from what you from what I've seen kind of reading the, the literature of anything uh, quantitative research tends to have its own path and qualitative research tends to have its own Weeds.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, within psychology at large, yeah, that can be there can be a disconnect between, say, qualitative and quantitative researchers, which is unfortunate when we go back to what we we've been talking about in creativity, which is the whole idea that, um, you know, if you kind of work with a broader number of concepts, you can kind of draw on a mm. greater number of ideas. Uh, I mean, the 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 lab I was working with in UCC, like, I mean, there were only a handful of psychologists working there, and um, we were working kind of in a very kind of multidisciplinary. Setting where we worked with a lot of behavioral neuroscientists or people working, um, in say epidemiology, or then people working more kind of in biology or physiology. So there was people coming from very different, from quite radical, very different kind of perspectives. So I mean, it, that, which brings its own challenges in trying to kind of get your point across or for people to understand you as well. So there is work that goes into that as well, but um.
0: There's, there's awesome. a great book. Um, I don't know how widely available it is, but um, it's just called Culture and Health by Mac McLaughlin. Yes,
1: he's currently in Maynooth University, where I am based uh, now. Yes. Fantastic.
0: And he's, I hesitate to use the word, genius, but he's a brilliant man. Um, mm. And his, his Would you say you, you love him? <laughs> I would say in love with. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but he, his, uh I, I actually never was never taught by the man. I don't think I ever met him. Um, he was uh, on sabbatical the year I took his course. But that book, which we got a kind of pre release copy of um, the year I was doing the course, it has wonderful anecdotes um, and, um, and, I guess, qualitative research about the idea of commensurability um, in science and in commensurability. So just to break that down, what, what he's talking about is to the extent to which, to re- reference what Andrew mentioned there, working between disciplines, the extent to which ideas can be translated. So there's this traditional idea in psychology, especially in personality research, that terms might shift over time in their meaning, but ultimately they refer to uh, specific things. So we talk about extroversion exists, it's in people. So say in the big five trait theory, which is one of the big personality theories, we have openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, anxiety, neuroticism. And uh, there's this idea that these things exist in people and you might have different language for describing them or you might do, you might discover them or not discover them but what what mac mclaughlin gets into in his book is that that isn't necessarily the case at all and uh, there's a an anecdote i think in the, in the book uh, about trying to compare between um sort of a J- i think javanese psychologist's perspective and a western psychologist's perspective and discovering that none of the things they were studying were comparable um, for all sorts of fundamental reasons that meant they could never be comparable and there's a really interesting idea there about to, to what extent psychology is studying real things about the person and to what extent it's studying things that the tools of the psychologist allow us to study, which comes back to the whole idea of this program and whether psycholo- what psychologists study, what, what, um, what resemblance that has to what people might ask about themselves or want mm. to know about the person personality mm. and and there's a, another there's a podcast um called war college uh, which studies um the war and technology and stuff and they had an episode recently about darpa the defense department's advanced research division and what they pointed out was that that was initially founded as a way to solve problems so say in the Vietnam War they were like well, we need this kind of weapon or we need we need to get into space was one of the reasons DARPA was originally founded was the space program but now it's become politically its own entity and it works away on its own things and there's a difficulty with that with all disciplines in mm. academia where they, they start studying not what is useful for society to know necessarily but what is what is tractable what can be done using the t- tools that are available mm. and they sort of drift away maybe from the most useful things anyway that's a that's a huge but tangent. if you draw
1: that if you draw the back to creativity I suppose specifically like I mean and I you know I would certainly see myself as studying within a Western tradition and the examples I've drawn on come from Western canon certainly so so it is kind of and I suppose Western modern canon as well so it, it kind of if you read kind of I think it might have been well if you read various who look further back in western history at creativity and how it was mm. understood I, I suppose the the idea of the creative individual i mean the the creative personality is highly individualistic uh, even even with group processes it's tend to to be seen at an inter-individual level um but i i mean you can imagine kind of um you can imagine kind of other kind of societies where where creativity is not seen as located within the individual or or even within um, humans but as something that comes from a kind of a supernatural place and I suppose you know I've, I've never really been immersed enough in that idea to really understand how that would affect your trying to understand um, the idea of creativity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but a question you know a que- even a que- asking a question like how does a person become more creative might seem incoherent from that kind of uh, framework
0: Right, or even even a society where even taking away the supernatural aspect where creativity is something that exists in the group or in the discipline, mm. say, that, that that it that is, you, you go and you tap into the discipline, that would be a fundamentally different way of thinking about mm. it.
1: Or even the idea that, you know, creative, creative in scare quotes, commas, output should just be a trade and that you should stick with, um, you should stick with the previous work of, of masters. Mm-hmm, um. Mm-hmm that you should and that any anything that kind of diverges from what's gone before might be seen as just negative or kind of a misuse of of your skills again and or an idea like that again would disrupt a lot of the kind of questions
0: briefly we have a little bit on creativity in animals um so there's there's some research at ucc i think that you we're both animals like but you know in (laughs) In other in non-human animals of course you literally transform into a non-human animal (laughs) 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 twice a twice a week but that's that's maybe that's uh, another topic for another day. <laughs> yeah. So there's a UCC study on uh, research in cr- creativity in non-human animals.
1: Yeah, so I mean, John Quinn, who works in uh, uh, in UCC, has has done some interesting work in um, in birds, like who who is. He, I, I suppose he's kind of coming from an evolutionary perspective, and I I, re- I really don't um, understand kind of really the nuts and bolts of it. But he has done some interesting work demonstrating that. Um, that the birds he studies are kind of capable of, of kind of problem solving. So he what he'll have is he'll have a, he'll have a rig where there's like say a, a sort of a structure where the 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 bird has to work out that it has to uh, pull a lever to kind of remove a platform so that some tasty food will drop into um, will drop into somewhere where, where it is accessible to it. So previously it wasn't able to get at it until it kind of worked out how to pull this lever. But I, I kind of found it quite interesting in that uh, he found that like about half Of the birds he studied were able to kind of solve the problem and half weren't so it seemed to be suggestive of kind of an individual differences kind of within um within kind of non-human animals so i suppose a lot of people who own pets will kind of say they have a personality or or what have you but it's it's kind of uh it is interesting to see kind of individual differences like in kind of cognitive uh ability within um Uh, those kind of uh, animals but also just the fact that some of them can display this this kind of uh, ability to to solve problems and if i remember
0: correctly from the i just kind of browsed the study but it was um there's a a, an inverse relationship between dominance and uh dominant individuals and individuals who are doing more creative uh behaviors so this kind of pondering a problem and solving it and then getting the food um was something that the less dominant uh uh animals were doing and that the more dominant were were kind of brushing in and exploring the space mm. but not solving the problem
1: yeah i suppose within this area we always i suppose we have to be careful about um trying to second guess the level of cognition that you know non-human animals who can't report on their their thought patterns are kind of having i mean i re- realize humans can't always report on what's going on unconsciously or whatever but um i mean within um, you know say within behavioral work you know you, you often have kind of a non-cognitive account where the animal kind of just tries different things until something works and eventually if it keeps working it keeps doing it without having to, had this kind of step-by-step kind of cognitive process of how it kind of came up with it. That, but it's, That
0: said there, I mean the whole area of cognitive psychology in part came out of work in the 1960s which confirmed that mice were getting through certain kinds of mazes in a way that couldn't be done through conditioning so it wasn't the traditional learning approaches that you you know you, you turn left and then you turn left again and you turn left again and eventually it's rewarded and there's a chain of operant conditions. so you form a behavior you're rewarded you learn to do it but there were some studies that confirmed that there were certain kinds of problems that were being solved and they necessitated cognition they had to be the animals had to be thinking and it's funny that even today people make the mistake all the time of of Uh, not so much in psychology but in other domains they mention the idea that we have no idea what goes on in animals minds and we do know that that thought occurs and i think affect is pretty much demonstrated as well in other words emotion because the same brain structures are to use the the imaging term light up so we 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 pretty much do know that animals have both thoughts and emotions whether they have uh consciousness is a whole different question because consciousness is involves the idea of being aware of oneself and that's probably something that can't be confirmed it certainly hasn't been but those kinds of things thoughts we do know that they have they just can't report them as you as you said
1: yeah so it's uh it is yeah it's a complex question but yeah they do have um trying to think about the actual um cognitive process they're going through is yeah is quite complex indeed so i suppose it kind of ties in with the um the whole idea of evolution and uh, creativity as well which is again kind of not my area of expertise but um did you want to kind of talk a bit about kind of stephen pinker's stuff for
0: yeah no i suppose just in a very very broad sense um without going into any research because i basically didn't look it up um what it what what the evolutionary paradigm within psychology which has been at the moment has been quite impugned i think because there's a lot of political debates about the idea that humans shouldn't have any heritable characteristics because that leads to uh eugenics or something um which is Specious nonsense. I mean, we know that people have different inherited capacities in certain domains, at least. Um, but what the what that what the evolutionary um, way of thinking in psychology tries to do is to uh, investigate a phenomenon in the world and uh, guess at, or ideally test, uh, the role that it could have had in evolving fitness so in other words what advantage did it give our ancestors or hominid ancestors in what they call the EEA the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness and um, to have such and such a capacity so if someone is in this case more creative what kinds of advantages could be conferred and there are obvious ones and um, problem solving we just mentioned even in animals is very useful and um, if, if food is out of Uh, access and you can construct some sort of uh, weapon or even trap to capture it then you're going to survive whereas another um, animal or hominid ancestor won't be able to survive very obviously but in humans um, there is also some evidence um, that creativity um, manifests as a kind of social status and, uh, and we obviously we can see this in the real world in the sense that the 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 highly regarded artist uh, will be conferred a status and even the lowly artist even the musician who isn't successful but who exhibits skill um will gain um, a social status and there's the 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 idea of, of um social currency um being a thing that that even if you have no money you can have a you can have a status uh, uh, and in this in our culture um art is actually one of the few there other cultures will have like the shaman who might be outside of the the tribal structure but has a status a high status accrued by their shamanic power the belief in their connection with the spirit world and in western culture we have this idea where the artist is somehow conferred with this magical or higher class identity so they, they might be poor and living in materially deprived conditions but they still might accrue status um and that's again that's something that's been studied and and, and measured um I guess one question from an evolutionary point of view is to what extent creativity in the non-problem-solving sense, so writing a song or um, 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 painting something, is um, what's referred to as a spandrel in the evolutionary literature. So this is something Stephen Jay Gould wrote about quite a bit. and um, The idea of a spandrel is something that remains from our evolutionary um, uh process but might serve no purpose or in this case the function it's an external function of something that does serve a purpose Mm -hmm. so it might be that in order to solve the kind of problem where you get across the roaring river or you catch the the deer to hunt you need to have a brain that has developed the capacity to um to do some of the other things that you might do with those same like other kinds of creative processes or more specifically in order to speak, which has obvious utility, you can transfer information, knowledge, and so on. The same process, same brain areas are also useful for music. You know this is kind of speculative but it might be that create that kind of creativity artistic creativity is a sort of an extra bonus thing that you get or a practice you know maybe painting every day whatever like one of the findings we mentioned that the the, the, the eminent people study and one of the things they found was that um greater physiological health in later life and greater energy in these eminent creators. so it might be that you tend to be more creative when you have lots of extra energy and that also ties into evolution in the sense that uh, there are two kinds of selection at work in evolution um sexual selection and natural selection natural selection is you you know you you persist you are more healthy and whatever um and and Sexual selection is you reproduce more effectively. So you, you could be very physically healthy, but not able to reproduce if you were sterile, for example. Um, but you, so both things are at work and sometimes in competition. So for example, really concrete example, peacocks will have this ludicrous tail, which is uh, you know very beautiful, but very energy inefficient for them to grow this enormous plumage. But it's necessary in peacock quote unquote culture to impress the, their mates and what it shows on an evolutionary point of view and the reason why something like that would evolve is that I as a male peacock have enough energy and enough ability to require resources that I can expend it fruitlessly on this ridiculous tail. And there's a sense in which you could interpret art as the same thing. You know, I have enough social status that I can live in squalor and paint paintings all day, or I have enough brain capacity that I can indulge in an activity that is perhaps objectively without worth, like writing a novel, but it will accrue me sufficient status that I will become very rich or famous and so I'm talking very speculative terms because I didn't gather a lot of studies on this before you began but I guess that's a broad overview of an evolutionary way of thinking about creativity Hmm.
1: I think yeah that kind of leads quite neatly then into the about whether you know creative art is all art is quite useless as Oscar Wilde said and you know the whole area of creativity and well-being whether you know creativity is good for you or is it associated with kind of different um I suppose problems with mental health um i suppose I, I might one thing that i that i came across that was quite interesting again using kind of a more case report uh, thing again from, from i keep going back to the uh weisberg's work just because i do find him quite interesting but he looked at robert Schumann, the the classical composer who has kind of been retrospectively kind of diagnosed with with um uh, bipolar disorder i believe so i mean that's probably kind of a fraught area in itself like but in any case um he he took an approach where he was kind of assessing uh Robert Schumann's work looking both at the number of works he created and also he he used kind of a, a heuristic you like a kind of a, a shortcut measure of their uh, quality by looking about at how frequently say the works have been performed or how many recordings there were of it and what he found was that um during say Periods of Schumann's life where he would be going through relatively manic phases, he produced a greater um, quantity of work, so he was putting out more uh, compositions. But the quality seemed to stay about the same. So it was kind of an, I thought that was an interesting approach where he was looking at how um, mental health problems might kind of feed into the creative process. And I suppose by teasing apart different aspects of creative output, he was able to kind of produce a more nuanced kind of account, which. I thought was uh, kind of neat now whether or not it applies to again it's a case report so whether or not that would apply to other people who 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 suffer from from uh, bipolar disorders, and another matter
0: but that i think that's an intuitively appealing notion the idea that it's um the mental health concern in this case a mania doesn't actually make the person more uh creative but it might enable a, a creative person to be more productive mm. because they simply have more energy yes. you know so, so you, you uh, at least in the initial stages of a, of of a manic episode uh, which which is obviously intuitively makes sense, and we and, and in the life stories of many writers, um, especially in the in the twentieth century, many great writers, uh, Jack Kerouac, Michael Moorcock, um, so it's just the, the the list is endless. But I can only think of two. <laughs> <laughs> but used uh, amphetamines. To, to write and it certainly didn't make them better writers but it inarguably made them more productive writers at least for a period of time and perhaps the cost was on their health both both of those people I mentioned had atrocious health in, in later life and perhaps the myth of creativity coming from madness is, is more to do with the fact that somebody in a manic state can have this burst of creativity, but really they were as creative all along and it's just as if they had lots of Coca-Cola's. They got the energy <laughs> to, to actually manifest it.
1: Yeah. And I suppose on the flip side then with with depressive episodes, um, if you look at some of the, the cardinal problems associate that with that, like kind of disrupted sleep, um, difficulty in concentrating, fatigue, you could you could see how a lot of the, these kind of aspects of a depressive episode could frustrate someone's productivity, even if they're even if they're kind of ability to produce original ideas is is still there if that makes sense that kind of latent uh, ability
0: yeah, yeah and, and even more specifically i suppose if all of, we talked earlier about the um the default uh network and it's it's clear from from research and it's also intuitively obvious that this kind of ability to to have free flowing thoughts especially where it's working in synergy with the executive network and it's like I will I'll think for a while about this story I'm writing or I'll think for a while about some paintings I've seen where you're deciding to free think those are those are the kinds of things systems that are disrupted by lack of sleep or dysphoria like emotional Sorrow and stuff. It's it's harder to think in that kind of way when you are ruminating on negative thoughts, or when your thoughts are simply disrupted by a depressive episode. So in lots of ways, you can imagine that 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 would disrupt creativity, not just output, but but the processes at work. But there are there are some um, there's some research that does kind of conflict with 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 the idea that it's just as we said there, just more energy for the creative process that they're actually. Is an association between creativity and mental health
1: yeah so the, actually the, yeah this was an interesting study that, that you pointed out looking at um, the thalamic uh, dopamine receptors so the thalamus is a very interesting region of the brain so it's um, it's kind of acts as a relay center uh, for for various kind of um, that that projects to various regions say the cortex or say the prefrontal cortex which is associated with things like planning or executive control and it takes I mean it takes in a lot of um, takes in a lot of information like from from uh, say other other parts of the brain as well so they were looking at dopamine so this kind of neurochemical receptors like that are responsible for for picking up uh, dopamine within the thalamus and so the yeah i suppose an idea here was they're pointing to the the similarity between uh the, this these findings with uh, related to dopamine in uh, people who are found to be highly creative and people who uh, suffer from schizophrenia so they found fewer of these d2 receptors which which pick up dopamine in the thalamus um, so i suppose an idea here is this could be related to less filtering of, of signals perhaps that are kind of interacting with these kind of regions that we we discussed kind of previously so so people um, with
0: schizophrenia we're having kind of less filtering going on in their perception of the world, or some aspect of their perception of the world, and that was that or or their perception of their own ideas, and that's actually kind of making their box, if thinking outside the box to use that metaphor, m- making their box broader or less concrete and allowing more creative ideas to to flow because there there there's less filtering of perception going on.
1: Mm, it's definitely it's definitely um it's definitely an interesting idea Uh, i'd be curious i'd I'd need to look more into what if if other conditions are kind of associated with similar sort of uh similar um conditions within the the thalamus but i suppose dopamine is it's implicated as well in with motivation also so again that kind of ties in with kind of energy and so uh with kind of just levels of motivation as well in producing creative work um and and there certainly is
0: other work i think it's referenced in this study there is other work which um which points to an association in the family history of people who are highly creative or highly, you know, highly effective in their creativity. Um, that there that there is a higher incidence of mental illness. It's it's not as cut and dried as you know a, a very it's a it's a small association, but there does seem to be um, an increased prevalence of the genes associated with certain mental illnesses, specifically mm. bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, in the families of people who are highly creative. Yeah,
1: it's it's interesting uh, what you're saying because uh, what we were saying previously about. Uh, evolution in terms of um, yeah so I mean that comes back to evolution so people might kind of say you know would these kind of um, why were, were these problems associated with mental health not kind of selected out kind of the human population but like it, it just suggests there might be certain kind of um, patterns of, of brain activation or differences in the brain that are that do uh, that do have some kind of positive function that you might see to to some extent in uh within families that where there's a higher risk of say psychosis for example so so
0: some of some of the genes which might contribute towards mental illness might be preserved in the population because they confer an advantage maybe even in other people who share them but to they're not expressed in the same way or to the same extent as people of their family have mental illnesses or even in people with those illnesses some of the time could be more effective in 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 other ways
1: And schizophrenia is kind of interesting just in we had kind of talked about bipolar disorder as well because it is i su- um it, it is associated with uh, kind of positive and negative symptoms so you you would have um what you mentioned like say kind of some of the ideation like kind of hallucinations or psychosis are kind of con- associated with positive symptoms but again with the negative symptoms there there's a certain level of withdrawal or a lack of motivation and those negative symptoms are the kind of things Um, that would that could kind of frustrate creative activity even even if um, even if somebody has kind of that that uh, ability they might might not be able to produce the kind of creative output because of those negative symptoms Um, and
0: schizophrenia um, is an enormously complex disorder that is almost certainly many disorders Mm. that we've labeled schizophrenia so it might be that there are uh, certain schizophrenic individuals who would have more positive symptomology um, more hallucinations auditory hallucinations visual mm-hmm. hallucinations or things bordering on those um, which might in some ways um, enable or affect their creativity while there are other individuals just as with bipolar disorder there are different subtypes so they who, who have very negative uh, symptomology and depression and yeah, depression and depression. catatonia and so on which which would be very antithetical to creative work so that's that's it hopefully um it was of interest and i I, we tried to walk the line i guess between being too uh too using too much terminology um that might be not understandable or at least explaining terminology uh, but at the same time trying to focus on real research um rather than talk in a waffly way um obviously that's going to be uh difficult for some people to comprehend and other people find it tremendously patronizing depending on the listener um we have a few ideas for future topics and we were kind of talking about maybe doing it on a monthly basis um if you're interested um leave a comment at my website Garethstack.com, or um you can email me at uh, or actually i'll just give my twitter you can tweet me at uh just
1: at gareth Stack. you're on the twitters as well andrew i am yes you can find me at uh ap Allen one i believe
0: the wonderfully easy-to-remember Allen one uh, on Twitter. Uh, And, you know, let us know what what you might like us to talk about in the future. Um, We have some ideas for topics. Um, I thought nootropics might be an interesting one to talk about. That's Tablets that supposedly increase your ability to think and are sold by everyone from Joe Rogan to uh, um, Alex Jones. (laughs) Quite a powerful uh, business interest in in these brain brain candies. (laughs) (laughs) There's also the replicability crisis. That's the idea that... um, it's uh, especially in psychology, but in lots of sciences that it's 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 been discovered of late that actually a lot of research can't be replicated. Um, a lot of big findings being questioned um, now. Um, lots of things like this. We've got lots of other juicy topics. So let us know what you might be interested in hearing about uh, what was was an issue for you there were some minor sound issues i know today um due to the setups of mics i know it, it sounds lovely and clear but sometimes there were some bangs and stuff hopefully that's something we can sort out for the next time and uh yeah let's hope you enjoyed it um so this has been myself gareth stack and and myself andrew p allen and do you want to give out the url of your blog so people can read up on your uh
1: but yeah it's just Andrew's Psychology dot blogspot.ie
0: that's you got that they're andrew psychology archive.blogspot.ie or you can check out garethstock.com for my work take care